Hey, good morning, guys. We're going to get started here this morning. Thanks so much for coming. A uh, little bit of review. We're spending seven weeks. This is week two. We're spending seven weeks going through the Old Testament. My experience has been that the Old Testament is a confusing closed book to a lot of people. They might know a proverb or an occasional psalm or maybe a story here or there, but, but tracking the entire like storyline of it gets a bit lost. I am contending that there are seven key passages that you will find in the Old Testament, and if you know these seven key passages, you will have anchor points to take you through not only the main narrative, but the main theological kind of oomph that it's trying to give. Quickly, those seven passages are this. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Number two, which we're doing today, Genesis 3, verse 14 to 15. The third is Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. The fourth is Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. The fifth is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yes, the whole chapter, it's worth doing. The, se- uh, the fifth, I said, the sixth is Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 32. I know that's a cop-out. I know that's four chapters, but you got to take it as a unit. And big number seven is 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16. The verses themselves are important in their own right because the verses themselves often reflect some kind of like shift in thinking, promise of God, something that is going to be a springboard that the rest of the New Testament builds on, but it's also what those verses represent, key stories or key pivotal actions of God that these verses serve as a figurehead for. So Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 12, the call of Abraham and the election of God's people. Exodus 19, the Mount Sinai, excuse me, Ten Commandments experience where God forms a covenant people and Israel gets its traction. You're getting the idea on this, hopefully. So where we're going to go today is Genesis 3, verses 14 to 15, but I don't want to take for granted that we're overly familiar with the story. So we're going to start reading at Genesis 3, verse 1 today. I invite you to follow along. If you have a Bible, great. There's Bibles under the chairs or use your phone app and uh, it will all work. Here we go. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Remember, God built a garden. God created the world. He made this garden in Eden, and this garden was lush and beautiful, and he made Adam and Eve to serve there, to work there, to kind of almost serve like this priesthood almost role there. So that's the garden in question. Garden of Eden, perfection, right? So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from any tree in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now this is interesting because God never said you must not touch it. Eve isn't getting it quite right, but she is getting the gist Let's give her some grace, and we'll keep going. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And may I just ask, how do you answer God when he asks you direct questions like that, which you know you're guilty? Um, You ever have that with your parents? And that, that makes you stew enough. How do you do that with God? But welcome to their plight. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it, right? It's what we've been doing since we've been three years old and we've had siblings. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Yahweh God said to the serpent, and here's the key pack, all right? Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, which means hostility, right? I'm going to put like warfare, hostility between you and and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I submit to you that if you understand that that two-verse pack and you understand the setting in which it's contextualized, you will have one of the key springboards that you need to understand what the rest of the Bible is going to be doing. So let's unpack it. You By the way, I do encourage you maybe to keep reading the next few verses ahead, see what God does to Adam, see what God does to Eve, see what God does to the ground. There's significance in there. But for time's sake, I want to focus it back to the first half, 3, verse 1 to 15, 14 to 15 in particular. A couple of comments before we jump in. One, we start with the serpent. And I want to teach you the Hebrew word for serpent because it is significant, and you're going to find out in a little bit why. The word for serpent in Hebrew is nachash, which is just a great word for a serpent. Would you agree? Like, yeah, give me a good nachash. And if you don't say it angry, you're not saying it right. I find Hebrews a lot like German. It just sounds like you're mad all the time. But the nakash, all right? So the nakash is there in the garden. And the nakash is described as being what? What is the adjective that it gives in your translation? Shout him out. He's what? Well, no, no, no. Here in 3.1, he gets cursed, but... Crafty. You have crafty. How else is he described? Maybe you're all using the same translation. Does anyone have anything different? Let's go with crafty then. The nakash is 
crafty. Depending on your translation, you may come across words like this. Shrewd, wily, um, filled with guile, you know, things like that. And I'm sure there's others as well. Um, strangely, what's that? Cunning is another one you'll see. Thank you, that's a great word for it. Cunning. Skilled in deceit. I like that one too. All right, we're starting to get kind of a, a, a conceptual package. Now, when you hear these terms, do you think of these as positive or negative attributes? Would everyone think of them as negative? Well, okay, challenge it. Yeah. Especially because who we associate them with. In Hebrew, and I'll just ask you to extend some trust to me and I could show you lexicons if you get into this, it's actually a value-neutral word. It's used throughout the Hebrew Old Testament in both positive and negative ways. So this attribute in itself is not bad. And sometimes we think it's bad. In fact, Proverbs uses it a lot to talk about a good trait that someone should have. I want to read you just a quick paragraph today from a, a, a Jewish Old Testament scholar and Semitic Northwest language scholar. His name is Zion Zevit. How about that for a name? Um, it, it, it demands to be read just simply because his name is Zion Zevit. Would you agree? By the way, you're having a boy, right? Maybe you want to consider that. Zion Zevit. You know, Robert, but I thought so. Yeah. I thought so, yeah. So let me just read this to you very quickly. It's a, it's, it's a little uh, excerpt he has describing someone who is this word. Make sense? Here's how he describes what they do. A helpful profile on someone who is, and I'll give you the Hebrew word, a room. Okay, a room is what's getting translated to crafty, cunning, skilled in deceit, however else we put it here today. Here's a profile. They conceal what they feel and what they know. Proverbs 12, for example. They esteem knowledge and plan how to use it in achieving their objectives. Proverbs 13 and 14. They do not believe everything they hear and they know how to avoid trouble and punishment. In some, they are shrewd and calculating, willing to bend and torture the limits of acceptable behavior, but not to cross the line into illegalities. They may be unpleasant and purposefully misleading in speech, but are not out-and-out -out liars. They know how to read people in situations and how to turn their readings to their advantage. A keen wit and a rapier tongue are their tools. Isn't that a great kind of just like profile there? You said it, Mike. If they were in the Harry Potter world, they would be Slytherin. And Slytherin, while many people use it to evil, is not inherently bad. Yeah. 
possibly hold on to that. Let's test that. And, and, and I think there certainly is that bias, but let's see how much it plays out in the Old Testament here and go forward. I, I, and, and, and with you, and I think where you're going, I think that maybe our gut reaction is to view someone like that with suspicion or see them as being corrupt or something like that until you're in a place of need. And then you want to know someone like that. Isn't it wonderful to have someone like that in your world who is batting for you or your agenda? And we all kind of secretly, I think, yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, next time you get pulled over for going too fast, you want someone like that in the passenger seat, right? Who's going to start crying or who's going to be able to talk to the officer in such a way that they are going to turn it to advantage. It is a wonderful life skill. I'll just leave it at that, but this is the nakash. Yeah, Aaron. Buying a car. You want a serpent when you're going to buy a car, right? You want someone like that. And so we have this Nakash, and he's described as being a room. Now, let me talk to you about Nakash. And again, this is where the Bible comes to life for me. And therefore, I want to share it with you. If I'm starting to lose you in the trail here, you put on the brakes and you let me know because I don't want to go too fast. But language is important. The culture is important. Things like this bring the lifeblood of the Bible to the, the surface and out of the, the well that it's often hidden from our sight in. In the Hebrew alphabet, you don't use vowels. You only use consonants, which is kind of weird because does that mean they didn't use vowels when they spoke? Well, no, of course not. That's like near impossible. Um, you were just supposed to know the vowels. You just knew them by behavior. And you can do this in English. You can actually like write a sentence out in English and take all the spaces out of it and take the vowels out of it. And you're going to look at it and you're just going to know it without even knowing why you know it. That's how Hebrew wrote. But what that means is it gives a certain fluidity in the language that a word can have multiple meanings. And the Hebrew Old Testament, as well as the rabbinic tradition that builds on it, uses that to its advantage as a poetic device, as a literary device, going every word tends to start getting pregnant with meaning. In other words, every word, rather than just being a clinical definition, will often have implication because of the way that the word can be used in other contexts simply by changing the vowel pattern. And it doesn't mean that you can make the Bible say whatever you want. It doesn't work that far, and praise be to God, it doesn't. And it also doesn't mean that Every possible meaning you can extract out of it is valid. That would be stupid. But you can track, and if you get into this, see how a lot of times you think like, man, I think the author's, kind of, author's doing a play on words here. I think he's doing like double duty in this. And the Bible, the Old Testament, is filled with this. So if I took the word nakash for servant, and I changed the vowel pattern up, and I made it no cash. You hear the same consonants, n, k, sh, right? I go from making the word to mean serpent to making it mean diviner. It's not a word we use a lot. What is a diviner? Well, have you ever heard of divination? Anyone want to give me a knee jerk, just kind of 
quick in the bag definition of divination? How would you describe this? Well, a lot of times it does involve deception, but that's, that's not actually specifically what it is. Trying to tap into divine power in order to control, that's almost it. It's more trying to tap into divine knowledge. So if the gods or God are omniscient to a lot more knowing than we are. Well, I want to know what they know. I want to see what they see. And a diviner is someone who, through their spells and sorcery and secret arts and wisdom and whatever else may be in astrology, you name it, will try to tap that divine wisdom in order to go, well, how do I make a decision? What am I supposed to do? What are the gods going to look favorably upon? Or if you're a Christian, what does God want me to do? You know, how many times have you prayed that prayer and started looking for signs? That's divination. I mean, I don't know any other way of saying it. Yeah, Ken. The old divining rod. You know, you're out in like uh, you're out in Arizona or Nevada, and you've been given free land, and you're looking for a well. So what do you do? You get the magic stick, and when the magic stick starts, to, I don't know what it does. Does it bounce or vibrate, or does it start to sing to you? I mean, I don't know how those things are supposed to work. But yeah, it's the same idea. How do I know where water is? I'm looking for some kind of channeling. Well. The Nakash is a diviner. Why am I bringing this up? Because while this is probably a no-brainer to you, you need to lay the groundwork to know why. This is more than just a snake. There are some who just want to say, well, it's just some snake. No, it is more than just a snake. It is a divine creature. It is a diviner. The Nakash is a Nokesh. Are you with me? Here, the Nakash is one who has access to the divine mind. The serpent is one who you need to look at as being a divine creature more than just what I would call a zoological creature. He certainly is a creature, which means he certainly is created by God, but God created more than just the earthly beastie things that crawl the ground. He also created the celestial Beings. And right here in Genesis 3, you have the seedbed that the serpent is something more. He's part of God's divine counsel, one of the celestial beings, something like that. Yeah. Or spin it this way who actually has access. Because if he's a celestial being and he's part of God's, shall we say, entourage or posse, right? He's kind of sitting in court with God. He has kind of that, that kind of access to God that a mortal doesn't have. So it's, it's kind of like maybe you don't have the president's ear, but maybe you have the ear of an advisor and the advisor sits in the Oval Office once a day for the debrief. Think about it like that, almost with like this divine celestial council kind of thing. I keep using that term and I can unpack it. Yeah, Marilyn. Isn't, I mean, I don't know the timeline of this, but when Satan was the angel that was cast out from heaven, I mean, and then he appears on earth as the serpent, right? And then he's considered, you know, beware of the, he disguises himself as an angel of light, but he's truly 
Yeah, the timeline of when Satan falls, because the New Testament will identify this serpent as Satan. The Old Testament doesn't, mind you. That's something that the New Testament kind of clarifies or flushes out. But when that fall happens is anyone's guess. Some actually suggest it's right here, that you're seeing it. And I'd like to challenge one more thing on the serpent here, in that we still think of the serpent as a snake. The serpent may have actually been in the form of a snake, but it's not required by the language. The serpent may be a divine being, if you will. He's a no-kesh, if you will. And I'm going to spare myself down, you know, geek lane here for a minute and not get too deep in the woods, but I'll just say that serpent and dragon tend to be interchangeable words. And so what you think about as a snake might not be how they conceptually would think about this, even though they, of course, thought about snakes too. Um, and, and you could just go further and further and further with this, and it, it's fascinating. But all of this is to set up the idea that there's a good reason Eve was deceived. You know, if you get the chance to sit down with a presidential advisor and the presidential advisor starts telling you or interpreting for you something the president said, would you be inclined to believe it? Of course you would, right? Unless you watched House of Cards too many times, then you know that is not a good thing to do. And that's actually what we have going on here is, you know, House of Cards, ancient Near East. And so... The serpent deceives, the nokesh, the nakash, deceives Eve and Adam because it says Adam is right there with her, right? And he's going along with it. He's not off the hook in this. And for time's sake, I've got to rush to 14 to 15 now. And let's just say it again. And I'm going to invite you to read it with me. If your translation is a little bit different, let's treat it like speaking in tongues collectively, where you just kind of own it boldly and let it mash out there in the horizon, all right? Starting at verse 14 with the poetic part. Cursed are you above all, together, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now describe to me, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Okay, I, I heard two murmurs. And you've got to talk more than 10 decibels, otherwise I'm not going to be able to get it. Shout it out. What's that? Okay, conflict and clash between who? between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. So Eve's offspring is easy. That's humanity, right? So there's going to be a conflict between humanity and what, a bunch of snake babies? Well, if you're an overly literal reader, you're probably stuck there. And I have actually read study Bibles that go, well, this describes why like, women are afraid of snakes. Seriously? That's what you think the point of Genesis 3? Is that not like the stupidest thing you've ever heard? By the way, which of you women are afraid of snakes? 
Yeah, like only one, right? And the rest of you are like, yeah, they're kind of cool. And I kind of dress myself with them at home and I don't want to know anymore. So there's a conflict. So if we're not talking about literal snake babies, what do you think the offspring of the serpent might represent? Future generations of diviners, seducers, deceivers, or can I just sum it up by saying those who do evil, or maybe put it this way, those who stand in rebellion of God, right? There is here the seedbed for an eternal, well, not quite eternal, but a long-term struggle between humanity and those forces at work that are counter to God. Have you ever felt like your life was a life of struggle? Have you ever felt like the world was out to get you? Sometimes it's paranoia, but sometimes it's actually true. Have you ever felt like there were forces at work in this world that were not in your favor? That there is conflict in your life, both internally and externally, as though evil is a force and evil is somehow fighting a battle or a war. Do you see all the seedbed here for things like warfare, spiritual warfare, the conflict of the human experience, all that we kind of experience going, we know that something is not right in this world. We know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And God's like, amen, it's not the way it's supposed to be. But this is what's been ushered in. So we know there's going to be a conflict and it's going to keep going on. Tell me what else is going to happen. The way that each side is going to attack the other, each side is going to attack the other, but it's going to look different. How is it described? Yeah, he will, well, he will crush your head, right? And how do you kill a snake? Like if you don't have a tool. Yeah, and you don't step on the rattle because you're going to get bit, right? You step on the head, you cut the head off, you smash the head, right? And... Assuming the snake is venomous, and let's just go with that, how does a snake kill you? Injects the venom in, into the body. And where does he typically bite you? Especially if you're wearing sandals. Feet. Yeah, why does he get you in the feet and not like in the neck? Because he's on the ground, right? He jumps up and like seizes my neck. Unless you're some fool like cuddling the thing. I mean, oh, look, you know, and you start nuzzling with it or something like that. I mean, it's absurdity. So, again, you need to extend this to me. Some of your translations are going to give a different word for what the serpent does versus what the person does. In Hebrew, it is the exact same word. So, you have to put it like this. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. It doesn't quite work. However you want to put it, I don't care. But it's the exact same word. There is going to be these mutual death blows that are being issued between humanity and the forces of evil. And I think we can all say that humanity has been seeing the death blow of the forces of evil since the time of Adam and Eve. And if you're a little bit more biblically astute, you're already a million miles ahead of me into where this is going with Jesus, right? Let's put that there now on that burner. What else is going to happen? And it's very significant but often overlooked. What else does God decree is going to happen as a result of the serpent's actions? 
Well, we have the enmity. We know there's going to be the conflict. We have that. And we have the mutual death blow. There's something else. What's the other? He's cursed. The serpent, the nakash, is cursed. And the way it describes it is this. Above all the livestock and all the animals, among all the creation, you will crawl on your belly and eat dust. Now, some have tried to take this, in my opinion, too literally and suggest things like this. Well, huh, snakes must like, used to have like hind legs and kind of like walk around like that. And some people will even try to look at the anatomy of snakes going, hmm, maybe evolutionarily they, they like, had like thousands of legs like centipedes, but God like took their legs away or plucked their legs away. I don't think you're going the right direction there. I think you need to read this more symbolically, more metaphorically, and I think it's more powerful that way. You who were exalted are now being brought low. You who are part of the divine council are now going to eat dust in the dirt even below a cow and a pig and a cockroach, all right? You who have exalted yourself and filled yourself with pride and cunning are going to be humbled. And if you think of the development of the Old Testament on this, it's fascinating because God always honors the humbled, and takes the humbled and lifts them up while simultaneously taking the exalted and bringing them low. Jesus teaches this way. Those who are proud will be humbled and those who exalt, you know, those who exalt themselves will be brought low while those who are meek will inherit the earth. You see the trajectory? Here's what's more significant about it. In the cosmic battle of good versus evil, who's going to win? Good. Why? Just because we wanted to? just because we know the end of the story? Well, because God says it right here. So you are going to be engaged in cosmic struggle. You are going to be in a life filled with conflict and battle against evil that is going to issue death blow after death blow after death blow against you and your family for generations to come. But in the end, it's not going to win because evil has been brought low. Evil will ultimately not triumph. And it's those three things that set the trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament. Because of the nakash and because of the the failure of Adam and Eve over and against his deception, there is going to be a constant conflict between good and evil, between you, humanity, and the forces of evil in this world that seek to destroy you, and it's evil. They hate you. It's hostility. This is not some DMZ ceasefire kind of everyone go home and leave each other alone. No, evil's after you, and it's seeking to destroy you. And you are going to issue a multiple death blow. They are going to kill you, but someone from humanity, humanity is going to destroy evil. All right? That goes back to Genesis 1 because God is looking to do his work through humanity. And so through humanity, God will not only develop his creation, God will not only govern and rule his creation and develop his creation, but God will also orchestrate the overthrow of that which is seeking to undermine his creation 
Hence why Jesus has to be human. Are you with me? You see where I'm going here. And finally, evil ultimately won't triumph. So what I'd like to do is just for a few minutes is give you just a couple of sampling Old Testament passages that pick up on these metaphors and play them out. The mistake people make when they read the Bible and want to see earlier parts of the Bible like incorporated as they look for exact quotes. That happens sometimes, but far more often what the Bible does is it picks up on the ideas, the conceptual framework, the, the field of vision, and flushes them out. So you've got to kind of know the, the color of the story to see how the Bible uses it. Does that make sense, what I mean by that? Um, just, just cluster up into groups. And I'm just going to like shout out like 10 passages. And you just pick one and go, man, that passage rocks, all right? And I'm going to do that one. How about this? How about something like, um, I don't know, Numbers 24, verse 17? How about something like this? Matthew 3, verse 7. How about something like this? Um, 2 Samuel 22, verse 51. How about this? Psalm 110. How about this? Isaiah 14, verse 25. How about this? Psalm 2. How about this? Psalm 72. How about this? Psalm 89, 20. Now you can read some context around this. Did you, were you able to remember at least one of those? No. Well, I gave you like 10 of them. You couldn't remember one? Yeah. All right. Numbers 24, verse 17. Psalm 2. Matthew 3, verse 7. Okay, have you been able to get one of those three? No? Do it again? You don't have to look up all three. You don't have to remember them all. Just pick one. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Second Samuel 22, verse 51. Yeah, you're looking at it going? All right. Just look them up for a minute. Another great one is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk 3, verse 13. Is that a name in Dutch? Like, do you see that, like, used? Because that's not one that's ever made its way into, like, U.S., you know? Yeah. I've never met a Habakkuk. Yeah. Or Habakkuk. All right. Did you get a chance to, like, scope a couple of them? Maybe one of them? Yeah. All right. Yeah, Psalm 110. Describe it to us. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. What does that imply? You're going to step on them. They are brought low, their heads in the ground, and you're walking on heads. Isn't that one of the most quoted? It is the most quoted. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's used in relation to Jesus every single time about the way that God is going to exalt the humble Jesus, you know, born in a peasant, out of wedlock, right, arguably, um, at least from perception 
you know, standpoint. And you are going to be the king. You're going to be the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to rule over all. And you're going to bring all enemies under you and crush their heads. Yeah, great. What else? Yeah, what do you got? For nations shall rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Yep, yep. Um, is actually, uh, did I say Matthew 24, 7? I, I said Numbers 24, 17. Matthew 3, 7. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a good passage, no man. Thanks, sir. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, Jared, what do you got? Yeah, Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Give us a, a recap or a key verse. Yeah, so it seems like uh, um, Solomon is praying um, that God will, um, that through the king, um, that the king will save the children of the needy and the king will crush the oppressor. Um, and then later, um, may Yeah, the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, will crush the enemies. Notice how often the destruction language of the Bible is, is used with the term of crushing. Um, that's not insignificant. And they will lick the dust. You seen Genesis 3 popping out of that? Yeah. How about another? Yeah, yeah, you got it? Thanks, Jared. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Okay, and what, what's maybe like a verse before or after? Does it get anywhere else? We got victory for this anointed one. Yeah. Playing there a little bit, and uh, yeah, I may have anchored the verse wrong, but it's on the right track. Anything else? Okay. Keep flushing that out in Isaiah 14. Where are you finding, like, brought low language, serpent language? Okay, keep looking, playing in there, and you're going to even find more. All right, but yeah, you're getting that cutoff idea? Sure. Anyone else look anything else up? Yeah, verse 17. Isn't that just great? I mean, we, we don't talk that way anymore, you know? Did you, anyone look up, like, the, the Matthew reference? What does John the Baptist call the, 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 the antagonistic ones to his message? Brood of vipers. That is not insignificant. And you are going to see from... If you're keyed into this, if you know Genesis 3, 14 to 15 well, you are going to see these motifs everywhere in the Old Testament in the New Testament. The humble one being brought up. The proud and exalted enemies of God being brought low. Often with language like of defeat being things like, they will lick the dust, they will be under our feet, they will be crushed under our feet, things like that. You're going to obviously see all the hostility, mutual combat kind of language. And of course, Jesus being the par excellence. How does Jesus, as a human, fundamentally defeat evil? Through mutual death blow. By dying to evil, he kills evil. By being crucified, he crushes the head of the serpent. And Paul makes a lot of that language. Revelation, 
makes a lot of that language. Do you remember how Revelation 12, we see that ancient serpent, the devil who led all people astray, and we see the beast who comes up in Revelation 13, described as one who has a mortal head wound. And you see how it plays it out? Keep your eye out for it, and you'll not only see the color that it brings to the Bible, but most significantly, you'll see the theme that there is a conflict in this world between humanity and forces opposed to God, that they are going to issue mutual destruction to each other, and evil will ultimately lose. That is the hope that Genesis 3 rockets forward. And we're out of time, and next week, we will go to Genesis 12. God bless. Thanks for coming.